We'll read from verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brothers, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dharma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray once more. For God of grace, we come and plead that by the same spirit anticipated by these disciples and granted to them that we also may come to know you and do your will. Father, again we plead for a strength beyond our own, for an understanding that only the spirit can give, for a, a grasp of the truth that will guide us in our pilgrimage and teach us also to honour Christ in all our days and all our ways, for we ask it through his name. Amen. Amen. I imagine that most of us, when expecting an important guest, take pains to make sure that everything is in place and in order. Uh, you boys and girls may know what it's like to think, actually, it's, it's best if I just go and spend time in my room because any minute now, Dad or Mum is going to marshal me to get everything right and orderly. Things need to be in place. We have a special guest arriving soon. Everything needs to be prepared. Everything needs to be where it belongs. These disciples, these apostles, are anticipating the arrival of none other than the, the vicar of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's the, the way he's sometimes described, the, the representative of Christ. Christ, having ascended into heaven, is going to come to them by his Spirit. The promise of the Father is at hand, and Christ is preparing his new Israel. But the foundation is now incomplete if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, you will see 
Christ's promise, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He used the same language in Luke 22 and verse 30. You may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom <coughs> and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are 12 thrones for 12 judges and there are only 11 to sit there. At this point, the number is not complete. And remember that Christ's intention is to build his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he himself being the chief cornerstone. <coughs> One of those foundation stones is missing. This is significant. Everything needs to be in place for when the Holy Spirit comes. So what you have here first is the disciples gathered. The disciples gathered. Now we know some of them who were there. <coughs> we have the 11 numbered in verse 13 of the chapter. We're told that with them, continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication, are the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They're pleading with God in the light of the promises that the Lord has given to them. They're expressing their dependence on God. <coughs> That's what prayer is. They're seeking his face. But the gathering is bigger than this. We're told now there are about 120 who are gathered together on this particular occasion in these days. It's a sizable community. And we know that that's not all of them because the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once after his resurrection. So what you seem to have here is a, a, a gathering of more or less, depending on who is available. And 120 are here on this occasion. Quick question. Would you have been there? <coughs> Would you have belonged in this group? Would you have been? Are you now with a faithful few? Do you love Christ? <coughs> are you willing to perhaps risk your safety, your liberty, your well-being in order to gather together with the saints. It was no small thing for the disciples of the Nazarene to gather in these days. The disciples gathered, the scripture was now applied. <coughs> Peter, himself restored, now takes the lead. And this is the first speech that is recorded in the book of the Acts. Now, notice the way Peter handles scripture. You may recall, if you were here when we were working our way through Luke's gospel, that the scriptures were opened to these men, Luke 24, 44, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. 
and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Peter has begun to read his Bible the way Christ read the Bible. Remember, this is the man who, when the Lord Jesus had said, I must go up to Jerusalem, I must suffer and die at the hands of the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, Peter had said, no, far be this from you, O Lord. Peter didn't see what Christ had said the scriptures contained concerning him. Peter was not reading the Bible with Christ in view. In fact, he was resisting the testimony of scripture concerning the Lord Jesus. But now Peter is reading his Bible, might we say, like a Christian. He is seeing Christ where Christ is. And this is a vital skill for you and me to develop. These are the things that we want to be able to do. We want to read our Old Testaments the way Christ taught his disciples to read, the way that Peter was learning to read. What is it then about the way that Peter handles the Bible at this point? Well, he speaks with scriptural certainty. This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, or verse 20. It is written in the book of Psalms. Peter understood that there was a necessity here that the scriptures must come to pass. There's an absolute certainty if God has spoken, these things must happen. It's, it's a blessing to us to be able to trace that out where it has happened. And it's a joy for us to remember that those promises which God has made yet to be fulfilled are just as certain as the ones which have been made and will have been fulfilled. There's scriptural certainty. This scripture had to be fulfilled. There's also scriptural authority. This, in very short compass, is one of the most beautiful statements that you could read about the very nature of the word of God. The Holy Spirit spoke these things before by the mouth of David. Is scripture a human production? Yes. Is scripture a divine production? Yes, Peter himself writing his, uh, his letters would, would talk about holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's just the language he's using here. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. When the man that God had formed, when the, the sweet singer of Israel was writing his psalms, passing through those experiences like the ones that Alan briefly identified reading Psalm 144. When David was going through those deep waters, when David was looking up to God, when David was speaking on behalf of God, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the mouth of David. The Bible that you have is truly the word of the living God and it has come to you by the mouths of the men whom God has crafted, appointed and directed using their very nature, their very personality, their very character, their very experience to bring to bear his truth upon you. And because of this, it ought to be obeyed. It is written. 
when God has spoken by his servants, we should bow to the authority of the word of God. Then there's scriptural applicability. This is, this is talking about what happened to the Lord Jesus and to Judas the traitor. Jesus' experience is set forth in the Bible. These Psalms that Peter quotes, he says, that was speaking about our Lord and Saviour. Again, I, I wonder how, how competent we are to read our Bibles like this. It's very easy for us, I think, to read the Psalms and say, I feel a bit like that, that's about me. Peter's teaching us to read the Psalms and say, I see the Lord Christ in these words. I see the Lord Jesus and his experience set forth and shadowed out. So, it's written, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Judas is identified here as numbered with but betraying Christ. And Peter says, because the scriptures speak about Jesus, those things that were written centuries before are directly applicable to our circumstances now. Again, the Apostle Paul would say <clears throat> the things were written before for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. So when we read our Bibles, while we read of Christ and what happens to him, while we see the experience of our Lord Jesus, while we hear his voice, we see him also as the king of his people and the things that are spoken of, those are the realities into which we also enter. Peter understands then that the, the people of God, they are living out what the scriptures speak concerning the flock of God's pasture. And then there's scriptural specificity. I want you to see just how precise this is. Peter quotes in two Psalms, 69 and verse 25. Let their dwelling place be desolate... Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded, add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. And Peter, reading Psalm 69, since Christ rose from the dead, spoke to him, began to show him how to understand the Bible. He's reading Psalm 69. He says, this is talking about the experience of the Son of Man. And if that is the case, then this one whose dwelling place must be desolate, that's speaking of the betrayer of the Lord Christ. He's talking about Judas. And then Psalm 109 and verse 8. Peter's second quotation let me go back to verses 4 and 5. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Peter says, I know who that is now. Yes, it's a general description of those who stood against David in his day. It's true for David. Yes, it may be true for us because they will hate us as they hated the master. This is always going to be our experience. But this is talking about Judas, the man whom Christ loved 
hated him in return. The man to whom Christ did good rewarded the saviour with evil. So set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Now we need to be careful, don't we? We need to be careful on the one hand not to drag up details out of context and try and apply them in ways that they don't apply. But we need equally to be careful to read the detail of our Bibles and to say, this is God's word. And down to every jot and tittle, these things are true. Peter is now following Christ's lead. Peter is reading the Bible as a man who is living in the light of the death, resurrection and ascension of the king. And he sees the king's experience down to its most minute details shadowed out in the pages of our Bibles. My friends, when we preach the prophets like this, when we preach the Psalms like this, when we preach the histories like this, this is not wishful thinking. This is not spiritualizing the text. We're looking for and seeking to find the Lord Christ, his experience and the experience of his people following in his footsteps. And Peter, a man himself restored to favour, brought back into the fold, sustained by the Lord Christ, instructed by the Lord's, Lord Christ, now, as so often, takes the lead, this time in a healthy way, and says, let's read our Bibles. Let's understand how they speak to us of Christ. Let us come with humble obedience to the word of God and interpret our experience in the light of what God has said and do what God commands us to do. So the disciples are gathered. The scripture is applied. And the situation is explained. Now, if you've never heard of Judas, if you don't know the history, you might be sitting here going, hang on a minute, I mean, Judas, okay, maybe you know he's a betrayer, but now you've got this parenthesis, this little bit in brackets, and this is probably not Peter when he's speaking, but Luke filling in the background for you so that you know what's taken place. This man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dharma, that is field of blood. Remember Luke's writing for Theophilus and Theophilus may not have been in Jerusalem, probably wasn't in Jerusalem. So he doesn't know what the word on the street was about this man, Judas. Now, the only other place where the death of Judas is referred to is toward the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 27 and verse 3 and following. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed <coughs> and went and hanged himself. 
And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. How do you hold these things together? If we've just been extolling the truth of God's word, what's taking place here? It seems that the the best way to hold together these two testimonies, both of which are true, is that the priests accounted this money the money of Judas. They paid him to betray Christ. This was his money. It was blood money, and they wanted nothing to do with it. As far as they're concerned, what's done with that money is done by or for Judas. And in that sense, it could be said that this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity because the priests would have acted in his name saying, oh, no, this, this isn't our money. Well, you're right to that extent, aren't you? This is the money you gave him to betray his Lord and, Savior and, 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 Lord and God. But this is, this is Judas' money and we're going to buy this field. What's happening to his body? Again, it's possible that this is referring to Judas hanging himself from a tree. Some people think that he may have hung himself from a cliff or a piece of rock, that his body fell at that point and split open when it hit the ground. It may be referring to the fact that Judas' body was left hanging in the hot Palestinian sun until it became rotten, pulled apart, and his entrails gushed out. But either because it was bought with blood money or because it was washed with the blood of Judas, this field became known as the field of blood, notorious in that city as the place where the betrayer of the Lord Jesus had brought about his own untimely end. So much for the history. It's horrifying. It's terrible. This is the judgment that comes upon the son of perdition. Psalm 69, Psalm 109, fearful judgments, the wrath of God against the betrayer of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Now, to some extent, you need to brace yourself for this is only the first of a series of fearful judgments that fall against the enemies of God and the hypocrites among his community in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. What happens to Ananias and Sapphira when they lie to the Holy Spirit? Both of them drop dead. What happens to Herod when he puffs himself up And the people say, this is the voice of a man, not of a God. And Herod says, yeah, I am pretty impressive. He's eaten by worms and he dies. Through the book of Acts, God underlines again and again his defense of his people, his judgments against their enemies, his concern for their purity. God is concerned for what takes place among his people. He will both purify them and defend them, that no evil thing may find its way among us. Judas was responsible for his sin. Peter makes it very clear. Verse 25. We need to choose a man 
to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Judas turned against the Lord Jesus. Judas, with all his privileges, all his blessings, a man who knew something of the power of the age to come, who had gone out preaching in the name of Christ and performing miracles in that name. This Judas ends up a bloated, split-open corpse in the field of blood in Jerusalem. He goes to his own place. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus had said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Judas had his hand in the money bag, didn't he? Judas got 30 pieces of silver for betraying his Lord. Judas got a field after the, out of the bargain. And Judas lost his own soul. It is fearful and it's intended to be fearful. It is not enough to stand in the number of God's people unless you also have the nature of God's people. It is not enough to sit in a church building, even one where the word of God is faithfully preached, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Not enough to be in the company of the righteous in an external sense if you do not belong in the kingdom of God indeed. Judas is a terrifying example of what God does with hypocrites and transgressors, how he purifies and defends his people. I plead with you this morning, do not be concerned only with being near Jesus Christ. Ensure that by faith you are in Christ. All the privileges, all the blessings, all the, the power even that may come with a name that you follow Christ is nothing if you are not in him by faith. So you have the disciples gathered. You've got the scripture applied. We've got a man who was numbered with the apostles, but he has now been taken out of the way and has been brought under the judgment of God. And now we've got a place missing. Judas was numbered, but he's numbered no more because by his transgression he's fallen and gone to his own place. What then will we do, says Peter? Well, he's applying the word of God. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Judas is taken entirely out of the equation and someone else must stand where Judas stood. In the light of what God has said, it is obedience that is now required. Another man must be identified and appointed. And the qualifications for this man who is going to serve amongst the apostles is now quite clear. He must be a man who has continued with us the whole time from the baptism of Jesus by John to his ascension into heaven. 
He must be a man who has enjoyed the same privileges as we have, who has gone along with Christ through his whole earthly pilgrimage. And he must be a man who is willing, able and ready to bear the same responsibility to witness to the fact that the Christ who was baptised, who lived, who died and who rose again and ascended into heaven is indeed the Messiah of God. It cannot be, says Peter, that an apostolic seat will remain empty. The number must be filled up. Now let me say again as an aside, how many of you know apostles? Some of you know people who call themselves apostles. Some of you perhaps have been in churches where men have appointed themselves apostles, and sometimes women too. Who are apostles? They are men appointed by the will of God who have witnessed to the life of Christ and his glorious resurrection and are so able to bear witness to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ of God. There are no apostles today. There are those who stand in their footsteps there are those who walk in their ways. There are those who preach the apostolic gospel. But there were these men in the foundation. The only person that you would add alongside of them is another man appointed by di direct divine revelation as a witness of the Christ who had died and rose again, commissioned directly by the risen saviour to be his witness among the Gentile nations. And that is the Apostle Paul. Peter is adamant. The apostles must be able to bear witness to the life, death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, ready to speak on his behalf. They need to be men who have walked with him. And there are two. Joseph called Barsabbas, surnamed Justus, so Joseph Barsabbas Justus, if you want his full name, and Matthias. It's quite possible that these are the only two people amongst the crowd of disciples who answer this description. That might be why they're the men who are now proposed. We, we need to narrow this down. They've got to have the apostolic credentials, and there's only two that we know who can answer to that description. Just, justice, <clears throat> Joseph Barsabbas, Justice, and Matthias. These two men, able to serve. And then the lot is cast. They prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What does this underline? That although it is possible for these men to know what are the necessary apostolic credentials, it is not in the power of men to appoint apostles. They are appointed by God alone by Christ 
to be his witnesses. The apostle Paul understood this. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle. How did he define himself? Not from men nor through man. If that's all he's got to claim, he's no apostle. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see again, Paul's sense that apostolic authority is directly bestowed by the risen Jesus for the purpose of bearing witness to him. And so, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 2, this has already been emphasised. The former account I made of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. This is Christ's business, friends. And there's a man missing from those who will sit on the thrones to judge Israel. And so what do they do? Well, they know the criteria and they can tell you which two men answer the description. It can only be this man, Joseph Barsabbas Justus, or Matthias. And so what do they do? They prayed. They prayed to the Lord. And I think it's quite possible here that their prayers are directed to the risen Christ as the one who chooses his representatives on earth. And they use this sweet, sweet name. It's all one word in the original. O oh Lord, the heart knower. Isn't that a beautiful description of the Lord Jesus? You are the heart knower. You can see what's taking place in the soul's of men and we want you to direct us to the man who will stand in the place of Judas and so they cast lots this is perhaps putting both names on a scrap of paper or fabric putting them we would say into the hat and drawing one of them out it may be that uh, they put a black stone and a white stone into a bowl or a bucket and one reaches in and the, 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 the black stone is pulled out and that's the man. There are various ways that this could have been conducted. But what they're doing is following the principle of Proverbs chapter 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They are very explicitly making clear by their praying and by their casting of lots that the man who is going to be chosen to stand in the place of Judas must be the man of God's choosing, the man of Christ's appointment. Now before anybody says, aha, so this is the way that we can know the will of God. Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this man or that man? Should I, I go to this place or that place? This is the last time in the Bible that a lot is cast. Quite possibly because the Holy Spirit is about to be given. And from that point on, we have the word of God and the spirit of God given to all the people of God that we may know and do his will. The point of the lot casting here is to throw into the clearest of all possible lights that it is Christ who is going to appoint this man. He is the heart knower. And I think it's worth remembering that he knew the heart of Judas when he appointed him. Remember how it's described in John 6, verse 4, 64, or John 21, verse 17. Christ knew that Judas was going to betray him. He was not surprised 
when Judas went to the chief priests and gave them 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because he knew the Psalms, because he knew Jeremiah, and he knew what was in the heart of that man. And he knows these two men. We're not saying that he chooses Matthias because uh, the other man, Joseph, would have turned out to be a betrayer as well. But they turn to him who knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. They say, in effect, Lord Christ, these are the only two possible candidates. These are the men who answer the description. These are the men who fit the criteria. But this is to be your witness. This man is to fill the place among those whom you chose before. And you must choose again. And so the lot is cast. The will of God is made clear. The lot falls on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Hear the echoes there? Judas was numbered, but now he's been taken out of the way. And now another man is numbered where Judas once stood. A new gift has been given. And the foundation of the church has been restored. That symbolism of the 12 men. This is the new covenant Israel of God. And as there were 12 princes in Israel, the heads of their father's households, so there will be 12 witnesses by whose preaching and teaching the new covenant Israel of God will be called into existence by the declaration of the risen Christ by his faithful and appointed witnesses. And so Israel is ready to be built on the foundation of of the prophets and apostles. Two simple things to learn from this. The first is prayerful obedience to the word of God properly interpreted. Prayerful obedience to the word of God properly interpreted. My friends, as God's people, living in the light of new covenant revelation, looking back on Genesis through to Malachi, through the, the lens of a Christ who died and rose and ascended into heaven, reading in the light of the New Testament with all its beauty and clarity and glory so that we are able to see Christ in places where God has been pleased to put him. That kind of reading and the kind of committed obedience to the word of God that follows when we see the certainty and the authority and the applicability and the specificity of scripture that is the mark of a faithful church of Jesus Christ what does the word of God say is such a simple and safe question for us to ask as a congregation and as individuals so often the problem with people who say I don't know what God wants me to do is less that they don't know what God wants them to do and more that they don't want to do what God wants them to do the Bible is sufficient. Sometimes it is absolutely precise. Sometimes you'll get a general precept or a principle. Sometimes there's a command. Sometimes there's a promise. Sometimes there's an assurance. All of those things have been written for us. Both the Old and the New Testament. We have a whole Bible. And when we are seeking to live and to serve in the light of God's revelation, we turn back to the scriptures. 
What has he said about the rule of the church? What has he said about the composition of his people? What has he said about the way that we worship? What has he said about the way that we are to walk before him? What has he said about the things that we are to take in through our eyes and ears? What has he said about the words that should proceed from our lips? Those are our marching orders. I remember nearly 20 years ago now, a big black man who stood in this pulpit, Ashill Blaze, preaching on the occasion of my induction into pastoral ministry here. I don't know how many of you were here. Those of you who were might remember that for about 15 minutes of that sermon, there was a Bible balanced on his head. And that's, no, that's not at all metaphorical. He stood there. How he quite did it, I don't know, but he managed to get it up there. And he preached for 15 minutes, standing like this. I'm not going to try 15 seconds. His point was this. I wouldn't recommend anybody try that. Pastor Blaze was Pastor Blaze, and no one should try and copy a man like Pastor Blaze. But his point was this. Sir, you are under the word of God. This book is your authority. For here, God has spoken. And you have no liberty, personally or pastorally, to go outside, beyond or against the revelation of God Most High. My friends, that's where we're safe. That's where we're happy. When with eyes opened by the Spirit of Christ, reading our Bibles with what we might call an apostolic hermeneutic, interpreting the word of God in the light of Christ's resurrection, seeing him written there and walking in his ways, applying the word of God to ourselves for the lives that we now live as the followers of Jesus Christ. This is security. This is blessing. And the second thing to underline is the reality of divine government in the church. We may no longer cast lots, but we still pray that God would guide us by his word and spirit in the way that we should go. That's why the Bible always sits on top, because Christ is still the provider and the guider of his people. That is our ultimate happiness and security. The Lord Christ knows what we need. The Lord Christ knows where we are. The Lord Christ, in all his wisdom, goodness and power, ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, still has his eye upon us, still has his heart toward us, still has his hand outstretched to bless us, and he will not leave us without those things which we need. He will give his spirit to us. He will guide us in his ways. He will hedge us about he will supply us with all that we need. He will lead us in the green pastures. He will make us to lie down where the grass grows sweet. He will give us to drink at the still waters and he will restore our souls. Peter is acting as a man who follows Jesus Christ. And at this point in the history of the Acts, things are not yet ready for the guest to come. There's a man missing from the apostolic band. Something is incomplete. And so those who remain turn to the risen Lord Jesus, call out to him, 
and ask that he would make clear the man of his choosing to stand among the apostles so that when the spirit of Christ is poured out, when the promise of the Father is given, everything and everyone is in their proper place. The kingdom of grace may come and grow, extending by the ministry of God's appointed men to the praise of the glory of his grace. Same Christ, same truth, same reign, same spirit, same confidence.